You're listening to the Brookside Church Sermon Podcast. We are a progressive and inclusive community of faith in the heart of Morris County, New Jersey, reminding everyone that they are the beloved child of God. For more information, visit us online at brooksidechurch.org. Genesis chapter 2. Verses 4 through 25, and this may be a familiar uh, section of Scripture uh, for you. Uh, And I know there might be some things that might ruffle you a little bit in hearing this read in church, but uh, hopefully uh, as you hear me work through it, it it will be a little bit easier to hear. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 25. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth... And the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth, and no herb on the, of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no one to till the ground, but a stream would rise from the earth and water the whole face of the ground. But then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man who he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river flows out of Eden to water the garden, and from there divides and becomes four branches. The name of the first is Pishon, and on the one that flows around the whole land of Hivala, where there is gold, and the gold of the land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gilon. It's the one that flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat it, for in the day that you eat of it you shall die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. And so out of the ground the Lord God formed every animal of the field, every bird of the air, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and all the birds of the air and every animal of the field. But for the man there was not found a helper for his partner. And so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And then he took one of his ribs and closed it up in its place and with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This is the last, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And this one shall be called woman. For out of man this one was taken. Therefore man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and unashamed. Amen. So um, it is not good for human beings to be alone. That's what our passage just read. It's not good for human beings to be alone because as we just heard from this passage in an indirect way, we actually need each other to survive. And that's what families are for. Um, there's a, has anybody ever heard of the modern family? 
Yeah? Like modern, modern family? No? Yeah, right. So there's this commentator, Grace Yu. She comments, she says, the modern families comprise of different cultures, levels of intelligence, sexual orientation, and maturities with no single person acting as the main character. So the modern family, if you did not know I was talking about it, is actually a, a sitcom on ABC. Actually, it's what's known as a mockumentary or a docu-comedy. So a mockumentary, mockumentary the genre, uh, is actually meant to be a parody of the documentary style of filmmaking. So this mockumentary has uh, this, these families, these many diff- different diverse families who live together. There's uh, interracial, uh, international, intercultural marriage. There's step, stepchildren. And there's, uh, there's a gay couple who has a daughter. And then there's a nuclear family, and they're the, probably the least uh, all put together of all of them. And you watch this, them do silly things, and then they sit on the couch in front of the audience and then tell them, you know, to try to tell them how they were feeling as, they, as you know, this thing unfolded that we saw on camera. So it's a mockumentary. But it's not just a parody on the documentary style of filmmaking. It's also a parody on the modern family, which is how it gets its name. Interestingly enough, I don't think that there are enough examples on TV of families that actually look like our families. Most of us, as I said last week, come from families that do not look like the nuclear family. Many of us, myself included, grow up or have grown up in um, families that have stepchildren or step-uncles and aunts, right? Step-brothers and half-brothers and and uh, we've got you know, mixed-race couples. We've got uh, homosexual couples who have children. And, and so our families today are much more complicated than they were 20 years ago or 50 years ago. But <clears throat> it's not just that families are changing. Actually, our understanding of what it means to be parents are changing. So uh, here's, uh, here's some points from an article in The Onion. Anybody read The Onion? Uh, so it says this about parenting. Uh, Couples are now waiting to announce their pregnancy until after their child has graduated college and becomes a partner in a successful uh, law firm. Parents are now choosing not to learn the gender of their obstetrician. As parents, uh, as, part of the newly, uh, as part of the new infinity womb trend, women are now using a wide range of Lamaze, strength training, and yoga techniques to forcefully prevent their children from ever leaving the womb, forever protecting them from the harsh realities of the world. So parenting is changing. Families are changing. And it's, I think it's important at this moment, if we're asking the question, what does it look like to be, where do we go if we seriously want to engage in the question what families are? Where would be, what would be the source? Where would you go? And I think comedy is certainly one good place to start. It's one good place to go to sort of get a grip at what reality looks like so that we can uh, look at it a little bit more critically. But scripture is also a good place. I mean, we've got a passage here that has traditionally been used to talk about marriages and families, and we can go there and look. But <clears throat> I, I think that legal scholars, you know, judges and lawyers, psychologists, uh, counselors and pastors, all of us who are on the front lines of actually watching as families evolve and participating in that evolution, right? I get to counsel families. I do baptisms when children are born. I do marriages. And so I'm actually on the front lines as the family structure is changing. So where do we go to get a sense of how to think about what a family is? Well, I turn to anthropology. And I, I go to anthropology because anthropologists, this is what they do. They spend their entire life studying various different 
kinds of families all across the world, all throughout history, as a way of sort of getting a glimpse at it. So there's this anthropologist. Uh, his name is Maurice Godelier, and I don't speak French, so if I pronounced his name wrong, you have to forgive me. But anyway, so he uh, wrote this book called uh, The Metamorphosis of Kinship. And uh, it's, it's sort of like a tour de force of anthropology, going back through all the different kinds of anthropology because kinship and family is sort of like one of those cornerstone ideas in anthropology. And so he says, well, there are three forces that are changing families. And see if this sounds familiar to you. The first force that's changing the structure and, and form of families is that we now believe that you have a right to choose your partner. That's not always been the case in Western societies or across the world. So the one thing is that we get to choose our partner. Two, we are changing our understanding of how gender is related or gender relations, right? So not only the, you know, are women demanding equality, which is a good thing, right? But women are also saying, hey... <laughs> How do we work and take care of kids and fold the clothes and do the dishes, right? So, so changing gender structure is also changing the way that families live together. So changing of gender roles, but that also means that we're changing our ideas about who can marry and what marriages look like. And the third thing that Maurice Godelier says is that we have an increasing valorization of children. Now, I wish that we could spend a little bit more time on all three of these, particularly that last one, because I think that our changing understanding of how important children are is, I think that's not only interesting, I had not realized it until I started reading this book, uh, how important that is, that, that 50 years ago, people did not believe that children were as human as other people, that, you know, remember that children should be seen but not heard. Children should sit in the other room when you have dinner. Children should not be around. And I think our worship space is sort of one of those places where we're, we're starting to rethink, well, where do children belong? Because we have created a space where they don't belong here, right? We have to find another place for them to go. So this changing valorization of children, that's another one of those three forces. But what's interesting is Morris Godelier, this anthropologist, he says that all of these three forces are actually undergirded by a deeper current. There's actually something else going on that's changing, that's moving these. And this is what he says. That deeper undercurrent is basically the promotion of the individual, independent of family or social groups. We value autonomous behavior. And we also value deserved and negotiated authority over the kind that is inherited or imposed. Now, being in a UCC congregation, those of you who have been in congregational settings for quite a while, you might have heard some words there that might spark some interest to you about what's special about the UCC. We have freedom of individual personal conscience, right? We have autonomous communities. So one thing in the UCC above all others that we care about is autonomy, right? Um, and we have a sort of suspicion of unearned authority. Right? Sit in any committee meeting and listen to the pastor and watch how, it's how the committee responds. And then you'll know most of the time, right, we are not congregations that value unearned authority. If you want to be in charge, you've got to earn it. Right? And even once you're in charge, you have to prove to everybody that you're good enough to be in it. Because we have a certain suspicion of authority. So all of these things, individualism, autonomy... Suspicion of authority. These are things that the UCC sort of is a part of the heart of why we exist. And yet at the same time, it's part of the current that is shaping the changing of families. 
I find that interesting. But I also find it challenging because I think that that it means there might be something that we have to offer the world as we're thinking through what it means to be a community together that we can provide something to the world as the world is changing, as their understanding of families are changing. We might have something to say, something to offer, some gift to bring. And I think that that gift is this, that despite our focus on individual personal conscience and autonomy and a suspicion of authority, we also value being in a covenant community. Covenant is not a word that you hear enough in the UCC or in congregational churches. We value autonomy. We don't want to talk about covenant very much. But covenant autonomy is sort of the heart of how we, how we work. So here's what I understand covenant community to look like. It looks like all of those things that I listed plus an understanding that it's not good for us to be alone. We need each other. We need each other to survive. And that's why we build covenant communities because we know I want to have the authority to think for myself and yet at the same time I don't want to think about things that are most important by myself. Right? So there are, as families are changing, there are a couple of different options that you can take in society. One is to demonize it. Right? It's a threat. It's a threat. You can demonize changing of society because you value families and the thinking about families changing then is a threat to the respect and loyalty and safety and solidarity and mutual care that families bring. Right? So you see family as a central core of the way that society is built and to question what a family is is actually to threat those things that you hold dear. Loyalty, respect, right? solidarity, mutual care. Well, the other option, though, is that we can, instead of demonizing, Maurice Godelier calls it angelizing, the opposite of demonizing. So we could angelize, right, this movement. Oh, that's great. We're at the first time in history, human beings are now believing that we can allow individuals to live as they feel and desire. It's great, right? This, this whole challenging the family structure is great. It's good for us. So you can either demonize or angelize this whole process of changing. I think, though, there's another attitude, a more healthy attitude than either of the two, which is to ask the question, what's most important here? What is really at the heart of this change? What's, what should we really be focusing on as it changes? Of course, rights, right? Uh, the individuals being able to decide for themselves what they believe. But respect and loyalty and all those things are good things. We don't want to throw them away either. But what's most important is the real people and their situations. Right? That's what's most important. So these things may be good, but they may not be good for different families in different situations. We have to look at individual families and their structures. And as the world changes, look at them and listen to them. And let their families, each one of us, and our different stories and our different structures and our different challenges, right, shape the way that we address this question. Basically, I'm saying that the right approach is instead of going directly to either demonizing or angelizing, we actually make the family the most important part. We say, we're going to listen to you. So here's what I'm asking. Is it possible to promote the individual, to value autonomy, to be a suspicious of authority, and also to value safety and loyalty and respect and solidarity and mutual care, the things that families teach us? I think it is. I think it is. I don't think that they're necessarily in conflict with each other. So rethinking family is good, right? Because 
By rethinking family, here are the things that I see. We're able to become more welcoming. Like I said last week, we're able to become more welcoming because we're able to value people and their relationships and value the people and relationships of all different kinds and shapes and colors, right? We're able to value people as they are. That's good, right? So we're able to rethink families and it's good because it allows us to be more welcoming. Rethinking family is also good because it allows us to think and see more clearly, We get to question, and because we question, we get to look throughout history and realize throughout history, families have changed. Families have not always looked like a husband, wife, three kids, and a dog, right? They've not always looked like that. And by rethinking family, we actually get to be honest and notice that if you go to any other country and you see the way that they live, you go to different cultures and you find out families look different in different cultures. They live together differently. They respect each other differently. They value each other differently. They care for each other differently. And not just in other countries, even within the United States, in our different communities, right? You go to a different ethnic enclave and you see how they live and you realize they own homes differently. They go to college differently. They care for each other differently. So by rethinking family, we're able to understand things a little bit better. But even more than that, I think by rethinking family, we get to be more intentional because we get to ask the question, I think, which is most important. What's good about family? What's healthy? What's life giving about it? And maybe what's not. But I think there's also a caution. Right. So let's just be honest about the caution. The caution that comes with all of these things is that individualism is hostile and competitive. It creates anxiety and alienation and depression and loneliness. So hyper-individualism creates a world where we actually don't love each other and value each other. So there's a caution there. So let's talk a little bit about where families come from. Um, So the passage that I just read from Genesis, it sort of is supposed to be an origin story, a Genesis story, a story about where we come from. And I know that most people don't read it anymore, most people like us anyway, because, you know, the world has told us that the Bible is anti-science, especially Genesis, right? So kick that out. Or when you read it, it's clearly uh, patriarchal, right? It's the man, the man, the man. And not only that, the woman is made from the man, and the woman is made from the man to be a helpmate, right? Of course, nobody who reads it literally um, or illiterately Right. Nobody who reads it that way um, actually points out that um, it's actually not just that the woman was made to be a helpmate, but without the woman, the man would be helpless. Right. But I think that if you read the story and you sort of get at it, I think that you notice that the point of it is that human beings just cannot live alone. Anybody who's ever tried to do a big project or go through a big struggle by themselves, they know. It can be lonely. It can be hard. And not only that, I mean, our apocalyptic TV shows of the one person left on earth trying to survive, right? This is an ultimate fear that we have of being left alone. It's not good for us to be alone. There's another, though, thing about families, where families come from. Not only families come from the fact that, you know, the Bible says it's not good for us to be alone. Watch as a child is born. Anybody who's had children, think about what it would be like if that child were left by themselves without a family. See, unlike other mammals, human beings actually can't survive by ourselves. We are not born with teeth. We can't pick up the language. 
And unlike dogs who can run around the house at two weeks old, human beings take months, years to develop. Our mothers are needed for nourishment and our families are needed for protection. Right? What other animals gain in instinct, we've traded evolutionarily as beings. For, we learn from each other. We need each other because without each other, we wouldn't know anything. And not only that, we need each other because if you look around, all the things that we value were made by somebody else. We didn't invent music. We didn't invent the piano. We didn't invent the pews that we sat in or the building that we're in. We can creatively add to the things, but we can't do anything by ourselves. We are born into a world that's already pre-made by other humans. We need each other to survive. It's not good for human beings to be alone. We need each other to survive. That's where families come from. And I think that covenant communities help us focus on that. So, here's the core of what I'm getting at. Autonomy, individualism. It's good because it offers us the freedom from coerced attachment. But in covenants, we realize we're born into relationships of mutual care. So it's good for us not to be coerced, and yet we need other people to help take care of us. But in autonomous situations, you give to get. You give in order to get. So think about charity. Charity is one of those autonomous individualist kind of thing. I give, right, because it makes me be superior to you. I give because you're the needy and I'm not. I give because I want to feel better about myself and it makes me think worse of you. Right? I mean, how much better would it be to actually think of someone who's in family and in need and care for them rather than to give them a handout and say, oh, that person, I hope they don't come back. Right? Charity is individualist, individualistic. But in families, in covenant relationships, you give because you love. You don't give as an act of charity. You give out of love. You give in a sense that's godly. You give because the other person is valued to you. You give because without the other person, you wouldn't be who you are. Right? That's what covenant relationships are like. You build communities of mutual care where I care for you and you care for me. And even if you don't care for me, I'm going to keep caring for you because we're family. And that's what families do. In autonomous individualist situations... There's an atmosphere of competition. There's shame and pride, right? Who's going to be the best? If you're not the best, you should be ashamed. And if you are the best, you should be proud. So we go on this sort of like rope that we're swinging between being shameful and being prideful. But in covenant relationships, it's not like that at all. You're not trying to compete against each other. You're competing because your self-confidence is built on the confidence of the community together. As we grow better, I grow better, right? We share in our achievements that we do together. So here's what I want to leave you with. As we're rethinking what families are, my suggestion to you is that the world is going to change, regardless of whether we do anything about it or not. It's changing because as a society, we're valuing individual choice. And we want people to have a sense of autonomy and self-accomplishment. And we don't want people to misuse their authority. But as covenant community like us, who recognize all those things and value all those things, we also realize how important it is for us to do that in concert with each other. We choose to be in relationship with each other so we can learn to love better. We recognize that it's not good for us to be alone. 
And so as the world changes, I think that we as a congregation and as, as a denomination, as an organization, the United Church of Christ Congregational Communities, we have something to offer the world that almost nobody else does. Almost nobody else has these main values that are part of the undergirding of the changing of society, and yet we've already decided how to respond to it. We want to create communities of love and care because we know it's not good for us to be alone and that we need each other to survive. Families, our families, can benefit from being in communities like ours. And by being in communities like ours, we can learn from our families. Right? So that's my offering for you today. I want to pray that we can become a community where we can learn to love better, where we can value each individual's input and their ability to learn together, but that we can also value our relationships with each other so much that we can learn to love and be a family so that the world can know what families really should look like. That's my prayer. Amen.